get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer at HowStuffWorks, and I love all things tech. And in the last episode, I talked about the founding of the Gibson Guitar Company. And I chatted about how Orville Gibson kind of, sort of, founded the company that bore his name. I say kind of, sort of, because he was a luthier, someone who makes mandolins and guitars, and sought out the help of some businessmen in Kalamazoo, Michigan, after he started getting more requests for his work than he was able to to provide for. It was it was great. His work was in demand, but he wanted to to expand. So he got together with a group of businessmen who all made a business that they called a the Gibson Company, um, specifically the Gibson Mandolin Guitar Manufacturing Company, and Orville was not a partner in that company. Instead, he sold a patent to the group and he got a, uh, a kind of a, a, a pension from them. But other than that, he was not heavily involved in the business after a couple of years. I also talked about acoustic guitars and how they work. I talked about electric guitar pickups and how they work, as well as the evolution of Gibson in its first six decades or so. Arguably seven decades, depending upon how you're counting. Now today, we're going to look at how Gibson has changed hands over the years leading up to the company declaring bankruptcy in 2018. So what happened? And is Gibson alone in this, or are other major guitar brands also facing financial difficulty? Well, first we have to backtrack just a bit. So in the last episode, I ended by talking about what was going on in Gibson at, um, in the 1960s. But earlier, back in 1944, Gibson's ownership changed hands. A company called Chicago Musical Instruments, or CMI, acquired Gibson. And the founder of CMI was a guy named M.H. Berlin. Berlin was born in 1895 in Romania, and his family immigrated to the United States in the early 1900s. They moved to Chicago. Berlin attended school through the eighth grade and then left school to work at Wurlitzer's, a retail store in Chicago. After serving in the U.S. Navy during World War I, Berlin would return to the United States and, after working for a musical instruments company as a salesman, would eventually be the founder of CMI in 1920. In 1944, only one of the original five Kalamazoo businessmen who founded Gibson was still alive. That was John Adams, not the president. And he was 85 years old. He decided he wanted to sell Gibson. CMI had grown into a successful musical instruments distributor company, and Berlin's company bought out Gibson. For the next two decades, Gibson performed well in the market and introduced numerous innovations in their products. In 1969, an odd merger happened. CMI, the parent company for Gibson, would merge with a company called ECL. Well, what was ECL? Well, it was a brewery and concrete company in Ecuador. What the what? Well, it was a company that was founded in Ecuador. Uh, it uh, was had several different interests there, including concrete and cement, as well as a, a brewery. So the board of ECL, or really the owner of ECL, purchased publicly available stock in CMI, enough of it to assume control of the company. This is Technically, what we would typically call a hostile takeover, the idea that you're going through shares of stock 
rather than talking with leadership about a transition from one style of company to another. The chairman of ECL was a guy named Norton Stevens, and the new merged company was called Norlin. And Norlin came from combining the first three letters of Norton Stevens' first name with the last three letters of M.H. Berlin's last name, Norlin. Norlin had three main businesses. One was brewing, uh, one was musical instruments, and the third was somewhat vaguely defined as technology. There are some accounts from Gibson employees dating around this period that suggest their new peers, their new business owners, were more focused on maximizing profits than on building high-quality instruments for musicians. And it wasn't that they wanted to make substandard products, but rather they just didn't have an understanding of what it takes to make a good musical instrument. They weren't luthiers. They weren't even musicians necessarily. And according to Stan Rendell, who was serving as the president of Gibson at the time, the new way of doing business ended up hurting Gibson. It included a fundamental change in the way the company approached products. Before the acquisition, Gibson had a single customer. That was CMI. Gibson didn't sell directly to people. Gibson sold their products to their parent company, CMI, which was a distributor. So here's how it would work. Gibson would manufacture musical instruments and then essentially would sell them to CMI at a profit. So whatever it cost Gibson to make the musical instrument, they would mark that up a bit so they could see see a profit, sell that to CMI. CMI would distribute those musical instruments at a marked up price to make their profit. So each stage, the price of the guitar or whatever it may be, if it was a mandolin or a banjo or whatever, would go up. So from Gibson to CMI, price goes up. From CMI to, say, a retail store somewhere, the price goes up, and the price goes up a little bit more to the end customer, the musician. So that explains partially why these guitar prices would get pretty high eventually, because you're talking about several different middlemen that have to get their cut before it ever gets to the customer. If Gibson were selling directly to the customer, the prices might be a little lower. Not necessarily significantly lower, because Gibson was always in the business of making high-end guitars. Their guitars were known as uh, some of the flagships, in, uh, especially in electric guitars. It was essentially Gibson and Fender were the two big names. And so they could charge a premium because they were selling the premium products. Everyone else was kind of selling either slightly lower cost, lower quality ones, or knockoffs. And that was about it. Well, the Gibson would take the profit that they made by selling to CMI. And they would use that money to fund research and development. They would give raises to people who were innovating in musical instrument design. They would improve manufacturing processes. Essentially, they would reinvest their profit back into the business, back into the people in the business. And it was a good way to uh, create an incentive to do good work. However, upon Norlis becoming the new reality, things would change. Norlis operated Gibson as a cost center, meaning Norlis would just pay the bills as Gibson incurred them. So instead of Gibson trying to balance everything by taking the revenue it got from CMI and then paying off whatever bills it had and, and investing in the business wherever it needed to, Norlis would just say, ah, oh, well, if you incur an expense, we'll pay it. 
There was no profit model for Gibson to pursue anymore. And according to Rendell, this removed any incentive to innovate and work hard. He said, if your bills are being paid, whether you work hard or not, you're inclined not to work very hard. So that was kind of an interesting point. Now, I will say that that doesn't necessarily hold true in all venues where if your bills are paid, you aren't inclined to work hard. But that, but if it's, if it's a thing where, uh, you know, in this particular, uh, arrangement that Gibson had with Norlis, uh, essentially that does seem to be one of the reasons why quality started to slip. But the company did soldier on. It produced a few instruments in that era that were not praised very much, possibly due to the new focus on the streamlined manufacturing process to maximize output. Some employees later expressed opinions that this was at the cost of build quality. Others would say, no, we made good guitars. They're just, they just weren't the best, most innovative designs. But things really took a downhill turn in the eyes of guitar lovers in the mid to late 70s. That's when Gibson began producing guitars that got what we'll call a mixed reception. That's being kind. There are certainly some fans of Gibson's guitars from this era, but there are a lot of outspoken critics as well. In fact, I say that the critics far outnumber the fans. So let's take the Marauder as an example. Gibson introduced this line in 1974 and went into mass production the following year. It was a departure for Gibson Designs as it featured a bolt-on neck. Gibson guitars up to that point had been set-in neck joint guitars, meaning the necks would slot into the body of the guitar and then would be secured by glue. So uh, if you remember in the first episode, I talked about the anatomy of a guitar. You have the body. That's the part that uh, has the sound hole in it for an acoustic guitar. You have the neck. That's the part that joins onto the body, and it's the part that uh, the strings are, are strung against and have uh, frets where you can press the string against the frets to make different notes. And then you have the head of the guitar. That's where the strings attach to the tuning pegs and you can tune the strings. So where the neck and body would meet, you could do what is called a set-in neck joint, where it has sort of this seamless look to it, where the, the neck of the guitar sets into the body of the guitar. But the Marauder was different. It was a bolt-on which is what it sounds like. Once you fit the neck to the guitar body, you secure the neck to the body with screws or bolts. So Fender guitars were frequently bolt-on neck guitars, and Gibson had usually opted for set-in neck guitars. So the Marauder was a new direction. Some people said, oh, they're kind of copying Fender. And some guitars said that it actually sounded more like a Fender guitar than a Gibson guitar which was due to the difference in the pickups that they used. So if you remember in my last episode, I talked about what a pickup is. I'll talk a little bit more about it again in a second. But uh, Gibson pickups have sort of a more mellow sound to them typically than Fender ones do. Fenders have a little more, not twangy, but there's a little more of a metallic sound to Fender pickups. And it's not that one is better than the other necessarily, they give off different qualities of sound. So it all depends upon what kind of sound you want to go for. What is the tone that you're looking for? And that would help determine which pickup you would most want to go with. It's not necessarily that the Gibson model was superior to Fender. It was just different. But the Marauder was also a bit of a Frankenstein's monster. The Marauder had the body of a Les Paul edition Gibson guitar. So it was shaped in the same way as a Les Paul Gibson but the head at the end of the neck 
was not from a Les Paul edition guitar. It was from a Flying V guitar. So it was a different style head than what you would normally see with that style of body. And the guitar had a pair of humbucker pickups. Now, I mentioned the humbucker in the last episode, but I did not go into much detail. So let me give you a quick rundown. Now, as I said in the last episode, electric guitars have at least one coil of conductive wire typically wrapped around a permanent magnet. The strings on an electric guitar are ferromagnetic, and the area above the pickup gets magnetized just through proximity. So because those strings are close to a permanent magnet, they get a little, they're magnetized to a small degree. And as those strings vibrate, they create a fluctuating magnetic field over the coil of conductive wire that's inside the pickup. This induces a change in voltage and thus current to flow through this coil of conductive wire. That current can be sent out to an amplifier and then to speakers to produce sounds. You can also uh, do lots of effects on the signals and create all sorts of different things like distortion and stuff. But what does that have to do with a humbucker? Well, I'll tell you in just a second. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. A humbucker is a type of a double coil pickup in which you have one coil's magnets with their north poles pointing up toward the strings and the other coil's magnets have their south poles facing up toward the strings. So that's where we get the the double coils. Now you can have multiple magnets within the coils, but you only have two coils. But the two coils connect together out of phase. So why would you do this? Why would you have one set, uh, one coil's magnets with the North Pole facing up, one coil's magnets with the South Pole facing up, and why the heck connect them out of phase? Well, as it turns out, conductive coils aren't just good at picking up magnetic fluctuations. They are good at that, but they're good at other things too. Like they're good at being antenna in general, and they can pick up all sorts of stuff which can produce a hum in an outgoing signal from the guitar. So you could have a guitar plugged into an amplifier, and you can hear a hum from the guitar, even though you're not doing anything with the guitar. There's that sort of distortion that's coming in, this little signal. And it, it can interfere with the sounds you want to create with your guitar. Because once you amplify a signal, that hum becomes audible. And chances are it's not what you want people to hear. The humbucker, as the name implies, bucks the hum by putting those two connected coils out of phase. Now, allow me to explain. By connecting the coils out of phase, the two coils can eliminate incoming distortion signals. Now, this is sort of how noise-canceling headphones work. Visualize a sound wave with peaks and valleys. So the way we typically think of sound waves, where we plot it against an XY axis, and we've got those nice, smooth curves that represent the the amplitude of the... Uh, uh, the height represents the amplitude of the sound wave and the length of that represents sort of the, well, the wavelength and then ultimately the frequency if you have any sort of designation of time on there. So visualize a sound wave with peaks and valleys that's a really steady tone. So it's nice and even. Now imagine you have a second wave identical to the first. It's got the exact same wavelength. It's got the exact same amplitude. But now imagine you offset it so that if you overlay the second wavelength or se- second wave on top of the first wave, the peaks of one match with the valleys of the other and vice versa. So where wave one is at its highest most point, 
Wave 2 is at its lowest most point, and vice versa. These two waves cancel each other out. The dips of one wave match the peaks of the other wave, and you end up with a straight line, mathematically speaking. And in fact, as far as actual sound is concerned, they cancel each other out. You, you wouldn't hear anything. So, any incoming distortion signal would be picked up by both coils. And you have one that's uh, with these magnets facing north and one that's with the magnets facing south. And the uh, the two coils are connected out of phase. So once the connections come in, you get these the noise canceled out. So why doesn't the humbucker do the same thing to the signals it picks up from the strings? It's canceling out noise. Why doesn't can why doesn't it cancel out the actual playing? Well, this has to do with that old Star Trek trick of reversing the polarity. So for the purposes of dis, uh, eliminating distortion, the north-south designation of the magnets doesn't matter so much. That's not really what's important. What's important is the fact that the two coils are out of phase. But in order to actually get sound from this electric guitar, that north-south orientation matters a lot. So one coil has the north pole orientation toward the strings. One coil has the south pole orientation toward the strings. That means the direction of alternating voltage of one coil is opposite that of the other coil. But you've connected the two coils out of phase. So this effectively flips one signal so that now you have an additive output rather than a canceled one. So in other words, all those peaks and valleys I was talking about before, they line up as opposed to offsetting each other. They they are set up so that they are directly lined up with one another uh, because of that out-of-phase connection. That's what flips that last switch to make sure that they're lined up properly. This dramatically improves your signal-to-noise ratio. You reduce hum, and you hear the signal much more clearly. So the humbucker was a really clever uh, uh innovation. And it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't just developed at Gibson. It's that Gibson really um, adopted the humbucker as their approach to pickups, as opposed to something like the Fender Stratocaster line, which used a single coil pickup. The position of the humbucker on the body of the guitar also matters. Many guitars will actually have multiple pickups. They'll have them positioned at different points along the body of the guitar underneath the strings. Typically, you might find one with two pickups. Uh, one would be positioned closer to the neck and one closer to the bridge. And those guitars typically have a switch or a knob that allows you to go from one or the other or even blend the two together. And you get a different quality of sound that way. So if you switch it to the neck you're going to be able to tell the difference uh, than if it were at the bridge before. And, of course, there are some that even have three pickups where you've got one in between those other two. And you can get all sorts of different combinations, and it all ends up affecting the tone of the of the sounds you're making. You're still creating the same notes. The frequencies you create remain the same. But the actual tone, the feel of the sound changes. And it's very hard to put it into words. It's much easier if you go and find videos where people are showing the difference between the different pickups. Uh, then you can really uh, perceive it much more easily. It's a lot harder to just put into words. Anyway, back to Gibson's guitars. The Marauder was what we were talking about a second ago. But in addition to the Marauder, Gibson released guitars like the Gibson S1, which had a single coil pickup, made it sound more like a Fender. Um, then you also had the Gibson Corvus, 
which is a hard one to describe physically. The body of the Corvus was meant to look like a bird. Corvus actually means crow in Latin. But a lot of musicians had trouble visualizing the crow from the guitar design because it's somewhat abstract. So instead, they referred to this guitar as Gibson's can opener because it had kind of a hook look to it, which made it look like an old-fashioned manual can opener. You need to look at a picture of one of those to kind of get an idea of why they called it this thing. Again, this isn't to say these instruments didn't have fans. There are some people who love these guitars. But the general consensus was that Gibson was losing its way. And Gibson was not unique in this position. In the 1960s, electric guitars were incredibly popular. The music of the time was very heavily skewed toward electric guitars. You had a lot of different genres that were uh, that were becoming very popular and some that were emerging. So you had rhythm and blues, you had uh, you had the early rock and roll guitars, you had surf rock, you had all these sort of genres coming up and, and electric guitars took front and center in most of those genres. So it became an attractive asset for larger companies that were looking to diversify their holdings. They were saying, hey, you know, the electric car, uh, electric guitar craze is crazy. Let's, let's invest in that. And so with Gibson, you had this brewery in Ecuador that swooped in, uh, to purchase CMI. Uh, Leo Fender of Fender fame sold his companies to the Columbia Broadcasting System, better known as CBS in 1965. Uh, Epiphone, which was another musical instruments company, was purchased by Chicago musicals a musical instrument company in 1957, CMI. That was the parent company of Gibson. Uh, so CMI buys Gibson in 1944. They buy Epiphone in 1957. And originally the two businesses were kind of kept separate from each other under the ownership of CMI. But Epiphone would gradually end up building more and more um, musical instruments that were based off Gibson designs, but at a lower cost point using lower quality stuff, maybe, or maybe not as precious materials. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. They were uh, frequently considered a sub-brand of Gibson and sort of looked at as the entry level for guitars that followed the Gibson style. So that maybe you would want to go and get an Epiphone before you went and got a Gibson because Gibsons were really expensive and Epiphones were less so. But there are plenty of electric guitar experts who feel that this era led to some really bad decisions among major electric guitar companies, not just Gibson. They point to cost-cutting measures that were meant to bring down the manufacturing expense for guitars, to make them easier to produce in larger numbers, and to make them less breakable. Uh, really, they were saying, Why can, what can we do to make these cheaper to produce, make it easier to produce a lot of them, and to try and reduce the number of customers who bring back these instruments that are under warranty, and then we have to replace something. And the way you do that, typically, is that you start cutting back on features. You start simplifying the the guitars so that there are fewer things to break, uh, and it's faster and easier to make them. And you might take some liberties when you're making your designs, things that a luthier would not have considered. The most frequent way I saw it referenced during my research was that the design of instruments was taken away from luthiers and musicians and handed over to accountants and bean counters. For Gibson, this era stretched into the early 1980s, when two companies called Rooney Pace Group 
and piezoelectric products moved to make a hostile takeover of Norlin. Rooney Pace Group was a brokerage and private investment firm with a specialty for helping companies preparing to hold an initial public offering, or IPO. That's when a private company turns into a publicly traded company. Piezoelectric Products was a growing company that had just held its own IPO and was looking for an acquisition target. And so they joined forces and started looking around, and they settled on Norlin. Now, the management at Norlin was not keen on this idea. They attempted to fight it off. They tried to get an injunction with the courts, but the courts denied them this. And ultimately, Norlin would lose this fight and ceded to the two partners on August 9th, 1984. Norton Stevens, who had been the head of Norlin, was bumped down to vice president, and the founder of Rooney Pace, which was a guy named Randolph K. Pace, became the new chairman of the company. And one of the first things that he said he wanted to do was sell Gibson from the company's holdings, which they eventually did in January 1986. There was actually danger of Gibson just going away if no one stepped up to buy him. Uh, before I continue on with Gibson, a few more words about Pace and this hostile takeover business. Now, in the 1980s, there were a string of hostile takeovers, which at the time were generally considered a legit strategy. But the takeover of Norlin would later be viewed as damaging, expensive, and indicative of a complete lack of competence. Hostile takeover fiascos would lead to the development of new strategies to prevent such things from happening so readily in the future, such as poison pills. Now, I talked about poison pills in an earlier episode of Tech Stuff. It's just a measure that companies will take in order to discourage hostile takeover attempts. And Pace himself would later plead guilty to charges that he had secretly manipulated a brokerage firm called Sterling Foster that had been involved in securities fraud shenanigans and uh, and uh, to the tune of like $200 million at that point. Pace was sentenced to pay more than $130 million in restitution to investors, and he got a sentence of eight years, four months in prison. So things did not end well for Mr. Pace. As for Gibson, big changes continued to happen at that company. Around that time, Gibson shut down its historic Kalamazoo, Michigan manufacturing facility. The home of Gibson shifted from Kalamazoo to Nashville, Tennessee. It had a second manufacturing facility there, and that became the new headquarters for Gibson. The new owners of the company were David Berryman, Gary A. Zabrowski, and Henry Juskowitz. More on them in just a second, but first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Gibson's new owners bought the company for the princely sum of $5 million. Consider for a moment that some Gibson guitars have been auctioned off for near a million dollars each. Now, granted, those are guitars that were played by famous musicians like Eric Clapton, but still, it's tough to think of a company that sold premium guitars for thousands of dollars a guitar selling for $5 million itself. In addition to Gibson, the three new business owners would lead the way to acquire the Flatiron Mandolin Company out of Bozeman, Montana in 1987 and turn it into a new manufacturing plant for Gibson acoustic guitars and other instruments in 1989. Things were looking up. The Gibson name was returning to a revered spot in the world of music, 
People were starting to forgive the, the era of the mid seventies to early eighties where the guitars were viewed as being of lower quality. They were starting to say, well, things look like they're back on track now. And the company continued to grow through acquisitions. Gibson would buy companies like Steinberger and Tobias Basses, Kramer Guitars, Slingerland Drums, OMI, and Baldwin Pianos over the next several years. In 1993, the company celebrated 100 years since Orville Gibson started selling his guitars, and they introduced a new model called the Nighthawk, which would later win the Most Innovative Guitar Award at the National Association of Music Merchants Trade Show. The Nighthawk had elements that made it, again, kind of sound a little bit like a Fender, and then other elements that made it sound more like a Gibson. But despite all these accolades, it was never really a top-selling guitar. It was discontinued by 1998. Gibson would reintroduce the line a couple of times since then. They would have a little limited edition run of Nighthawk guitars. But uh, some of them were only superficially similar to the 1993 model. Like some of them just looked like the old Nighthawk guitar, but did not have the same sort of pickups that the uh, original run of, of Nighthawks did. So they were really just Nighthawks in name and shape, but not in performance, which makes things really confusing when you start talking about guitars. It also means that if you are shopping for a guitar, this is just a good note for anybody. And this does, this extends beyond Gibson. If you're shopping for a guitar and you've heard about a particular model of guitar, that you really like because maybe there's a musician you admire and he or she plays that guitar. Find out what year that guitar was made because different times throughout the history of these manufacturers, uh, they have used different types of technology in reissues of guitars. And it may turn out that if you go out and buy a new version of that same model, that it will not sound anything like the one that you are familiar with. Uh, for me, it wouldn't sound anything like anything because I am not a musician and it would just be awful. But for my musician friends out there, narrow it down, not just to the the uh, model and manufacturer, but the year of the guitar. Well, in the early 2000s, Gibson introduced a new protocol called Media Accelerated Global Information Carrier, or MAGIC, which is pretty cute, the company featured the protocol on a new product called the Gibson Digital Guitar, which they introduced in the late uh, part of the first decade of 2000. Boy, that's a really wordy way to say 2006, 2007. Anyway, this guitar had your standard quarter-inch jack that you could plug into an amplifier, but it also had an Ethernet port. And you could plug in a Cat5 cable into the Ethernet port and then plug the other end into a PC and send signals straight to the PC. The digital guitar even has the ability to capture information from each string individually, which meant you could apply effects to specific strings and you could leave that effect off other strings. So you could add an effect on, say, the E string and leave it off of all the others if you wanted to. Um, I think that's an interesting idea, and it was, it showed that Gibson was really trying to push for the next era in electric guitars, especially with this eye on how electric music, electronic music was really uh, the new thing. Digital music was big and so and still is big, but was getting big at this point. So the company was trying to get out in front of that. It did not necessarily receive a whole lot of enthusiasm from professional musicians, 
But there were a lot of technologists who thought it was pretty darn cool. I remember seeing it for the first time and thinking, wow, that's kind of interesting. I'd never really considered having a Ethernet port on a electric guitar before. Gibson started to encounter a problem that was affecting a lot of guitar companies. This was the demand for guitars. It was on the decline. It wasn't just for Gibson. It was for everybody. Now, Gibson, of course, again, being a premium guitar manufacturer meant that they were feel, feeling it pretty hard because, you know, they're, they're, they, they, they really relied on selling fewer guitars at a higher price. And when your, your number of orders decreases, you're going to feel it pretty, pretty heavily. More and more music was entering the digital age. More and more music was being created without any actual musical instruments being involved. You could create stuff by computer. And so, uh, guitar companies in general were facing really big problems. But in 2007, Gibson would purchase Garrison Guitars, still moving forward. Garrison was an acoustic guitar company based out of Canada. And Gibson would then introduce a technology called the Mini Tune in 2008. It became something of a joke among musicians. The device consisted of a tuner, uh, as in a little device that has a, a microphone in it, and it detects the frequency of a strum string. So there are lots of different kinds of tuners out there. I've used tuners before. I did say I'm not a musician, but I do play ukulele on occasion, and I have a ukulele tuner. So what happens is you play a string, and the tuner detects what the frequency of the strummed string is and compares it to what it should be. And so it starts to tell you whether you need to tune the string so that you add more tension to it and uh, increase the pitch or decrease the tension and decrease the pitch of the played note until you hit the exact frequency you are looking for. So if the string's frequency matches up, everything's good to go. But if not, well, the mini tune would trigger a mistune to turn the tuning pegs of the mistuned or mistuned strings to get them to tune up properly. So you get this little robotic as the little tuning pegs would turn and it would put on more and more tension or less tension in order to get the uh, the strings tuned exactly to the right note. Some musicians complained that not only was this an unnecessary gimmick, but that it also would add several hundred dollars to the price tag of a guitar. So in other words, they were saying that Gibson was trying to create a license to print money. They were including features no one really needed as an excuse to charge more for their guitars. And essentially the argument boils down to this. Tuning a guitar is easy. You just need the tuner. You play a string. You look at the tuner. It tells you if you're too high or too low. You adjust the string. You play it again. And you do this a few times until you've tuned in to the right frequency. And it might mean that you have to do it three or four times. Maybe if you have a really good ear, you don't need to do it that frequently or, you know, that frequently to get to the right, the right, uh, uh, note. But it doesn't really take up that much time. And so the convenience of the mini tune was questionable, according to these musicians, that why would you pay an extra $300, $400 on a guitar for something that you could uh, easily do yourself for a third or a quarter of that price with a good tuner and just a little patience? In 2009, Gibson faced some legal trouble. The company's manufacturing facilities were the center of a raid led by the United States Fish and Wildlife Services, which might sound really weird to you. What, was Gibson somehow using guitars to torture fish and wildlife? Well, no, it turned out that Gibson had purchased ebony wood from Madagascar, and the wood was illegally imported. That would be a violation of a U.S. law called the Lacey Act. 
Two years later, Gibson was raided a second time when the company imported wood from India that the U.S. government said had been labeled incorrectly when it went through U.S. customs. Gibson's CEO, Henry Juskowitz, claimed that the government was unfairly targeting Gibson, going so far as to suggest it was due to his own alignment with the Tea Party and that the whole thing was politically motivated and got into a big argument about property rights. The government maintained its argument that the goods were brought into the country illegally was the real reason that they targeted Gibson and that Gibson eventually would be compelled to settle out of court, though Juskowitz continued to protest the whole thing. And got a lot of support from certain people in the Tea Party movement. Others said, no, if you break the rules, then you pay the consequences. And if you think the rules are unfair, then you lobby to have the rules changed. But you can't just be complain that you're being, you know, you're being held up when you you are caught breaking the rules. In an effort to diversify beyond music instruments, Gibson acquired a company called the Stanton Group. By this stage, Juskowitz was envisioning Gibson transitioning into a lifestyle brand, not just a musical instrument brand. So that would include audio equipment like monitors, loudspeakers, headphones, turntables. Gibson launched a new department called Gibson Pro Audio. Gibson would build this out further with a partnership with Onkyo Corporation, which made home theater systems. So this was really Gibson saying, let's look into the consumer electronics market and try to make a a spot for us there because the guitar business has been slowing down so much. In 2013 and 2014, the company continued to push for a diversified portfolio and an increased presence in consumer electronics first. Gibson purchased a majority stake in a Japanese electronic company called Teak Corporations, T-E-A-C. Then it acquired the consumer electronics division of another company called Royal Philips. And while making those moves, Gibson was spending a lot of money and taking out high-interest loans. And that, paired with flagging guitar sales, would spell trouble for the venerable company. By 2018... The question appeared not to be if Gibson would declare bankruptcy, but when. The company's acquisitions led to a great deal of debt that would be due in July 2018. According to the New York Times, Gibson, as a company, brought in more than $1.2 billion in revenue annually, but had more than $500 million in debts, and then that was going to increase if the company was unable to pay those debts by July. The company's lenders were really getting concerned. And that concern was largely due to the fact that Gibson's earnings, the stuff that's actually around once you take the costs out of your revenue, had been dropping steadily. In 2010, Gibson had $300 million in revenue. So a fraction of that $1.2 billion we were just talking about. But they had a 12.9% earnings before taxes and interest margin. So the profit margin was 12.9%. In 2015, Gibson had an astonishing $2.1 billion in revenue a huge amount of money in revenue, but the profit margin was down to 4%. So it was less than a third of what had been a few years earlier. So they were making more in sales, but they were capturing less in actual profit. The company was overextended and time was running out to pay the bills. In addition, more news came out about Gibson employees who felt that Juskowitz's management style was intrusive and confrontational. He was often accused of being uh, a micromanager, that he was getting involved in way too much stuff. If you go to Glassdoor and you look up employee reviews for Gibson, you're going to find numerous stories from people who felt the CEO was just involving himself too much in tasks 
that his executive management team and below should be handling, like hiring new employees or overseeing raises and things like that. Some even said that you couldn't even hire a janitor without taking it ultimately to the CEO for approval, which is definitely a little excessive for any really big company. Well, by May, time had run out. By May 2018, that is. Gibson filed for Chapter 11 protection with the intent to divest itself of all those electronics companies that had picked up over the last few years and concentrate once again on producing musical instruments. So the goal now is to liquefy all the parts of the business that are not related to producing musical instruments, pay off as much of the debt as it can, refinance the new streamline company, and try to focus on what the company had been founded on in the first place. In addition, there may be a move to oust the CEO, Henry Jeskowitz, that's in the process. Now, I've seen a lot of articles suggesting that lenders want Jeskowitz out and to have new leadership at the company. But as of the recording of this episode, he is still CEO of Gibson and owns about 36% of the company. So we'll have to wait and see if Gibson's lenders demand his resignation as part of the refinancing deal. In fact, by the time this episode goes live, that may have already happened. A lot of people are also saying that Gibson's efforts to get into consumer electronics was just an enormous mistake from the get-go, which is probably true, but I'm not so sure that it was obvious back when the company started making those acquisitions because guitar sales were falling and they had to do something. Gibson had to figure out how to offset uh, flagging guitar sales and stay in business. Again, they produced the higher end of guitar models. So if they had started cutting costs and cutting prices in order to boost sales, Gibson would have the danger of of uh, making its brand become less important in music. They were kind of stuck. It's like it's like if you were a luxury car manufacturer and you suddenly realized that no one wanted luxury cars anymore. It would be really hard to move from that to making standard vehicles because your whole brand is based off of a different appearance. And again, it wasn't just Gibson that was facing this. A lot of different guitar companies were having the same issue. Musical tastes have moved away from guitar-driven music. That's decreased the demand for new instruments. And there's a big interest in vintage musical instruments as well, which also is not great for Gibson. So you've got people who are serious musicians who want Gibson guitars, but they don't want current Gibson guitars necessarily. They might want a 1959 Gibson Les Paul, which means you have to go and find one. You have to go and buy a used one, and you're not buying a new instrument. So that doesn't help out companies like Gibson. And again, that's not just Gibson. Fender also is seeing the same sort of stuff where people are fans of specific years of of specific models of guitars, and that's what they're going for. And they're not interested in buying a new one. So unless you were able to produce brand new guitars using the exact same technologies as the original ones and then sell them at a price that would be lower than what people are asking for for the vintage models, you might be kind of stuck. But then you'd also get accused of not innovating in the space. It's kind of a really tough position to be in. Now, that doesn't mean that Gibson is doomed. It may very well be that this is exactly what is needed to refocus the company, get it back on track, and to get back into the good graces of the music industry. But for now, that is Gibson's story. Maybe I'll tackle Fender in a future episode and we can rock out again. 
In the meantime, if you guys have any suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, why don't you let me know about them? Write me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or draw me a line on Facebook or Twitter. They handle it. Both of those is techstuffhsw. Follow us on Instagram. And remember, you can watch me record shows live on twitch.tv slash techstuff. Just go to that URL. You'll see the schedule there. You can join in on the chat room whenever I'm recording, and we can have ourselves a good old time. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 